Well, hello, John. Hello, Todd. It's another episode of Flight Safety Detectives. Um, looks like uh, John has found his way to uh, the factory, or at least the virtual factory. Um, nice background, John. Um, well, I didn't want you to see the real one because I'm on the beach. I'm, <laughs> I'm looking out here at a collection of wonderful <clears throat> palm trees, and and uh, it's hot, it's sunny, it's nice. The mojitos yeah. are cold. Yeah, you know what? It, it's tough to be an investigator sometimes and an av aviation safety advocate. You know, you go to the worst places, have to uh, endure the worst things, while Todd and I are just, you know, stuck. He's in his office, I'm in my office, and we don't get to have the same amount of fun. You're full of crap because it wasn't long ago. <laughs> you were in the Bahamas when we were freezing in, in New England. <laughs> Yep, I'll never admit it. So, how you doing today, Todd? Well, I can't complain too much. No mojitos, though. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, maybe John will send you some. Come on down. <laughs> yeah, really. Well, we have a, a great show today. As always, um, we're going to be dissecting a uh, an accident that took place back in 2008 involving a Learjet, Lear Model 60. And uh, it was a 135 charter flight, and it had a, uh, a few notable quotables on the airplane. One being, um, was he the lead of uh, Blink 182, Todd? He was, he was a former uh, member of Blink 182, uh, Travis Barker. Yeah. And at the time, he was in a new duo with a DJ named Adam Goldstein, went by the stage name of DJ AM. They've been doing Got a it. show in Columbia, South Carolina. And this is, uh, this is the, uh, the results of an accident that occurred as uh, they were being transported by, uh, by the crew on this Lear 60 from Columbia, South Carolina, heading across country uh, at night, heading to Van Nuys. And um, we're going to dissect the pieces of this accident. The NTSB did their investigation. They actually sent a team down there to conduct the investigation. Um, you know, we always expect a thorough and methodical investigation, but in again, going through the facts, conditions, and circumstances that the board developed for determining the probable cause, uh, the three of us have gone through the report, gone through the docket, and uh, know a little bit about this accident. And there are some things that I think that uh, not only uh, I believe, but I think Todd and, uh, and John also believe, should have been addressed uh, more completely by the NTSB and possibly even incorporated into the probable cause statement. Um, so we'll get into that. Uh, we're going to uh, walk through this accident. We'll start with the history of flight, just a brief overview of what was going on. We'll get into uh, the crew history as far as their uh, experience and qualifications and then dissect the, uh, the cockpit voice recorder because there are some unique conversations on the, uh, on the cockpit voice recorder that could lead one to believe that uh, there is an issue of fatigue that the, the board did not, they discussed it in brevity, but you can see some telltale signs, some confusion, possibly even some, uh, some issues of lack of experience in the operation. So we're going we're gonna to get into all of those things and then uh, talk about survivability as well. But the key here uh, will be uh, John's bailiwick, and that is uh, maintenance, because 
this is going to be not only a operational related accident, but uh, it really, this whole sequence of events starts with, uh, with some maintenance. So um, any words, any comments before we get started, gentlemen? Well, I want to remind everybody that this show is being brought to them by our two sponsors, PAMA, the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, PAMA.org, O-R-G, if you want to get any information on PAMA, and by Avemco Insurance, a premier general aviation insurance carrier. Whether you need insurance for your hull, you need personal insurance as a renter, you need insurance as a flight instructor, whatever your needs are in the general aviation arena, give Avemco a call. They're nice people, professional, knowledgeable, and they'll talk airplanes with you all day long if that's what you want to do. And uh, you get a 5% discount on top of any other discounts you might qualify for by just mentioning the show. So it's not a bad deal. You get to listen to us and save some money. Absolutely. And hopefully you're going to learn something from, uh, from all of our podcasts. So um, we, again, appreciate our sponsors. Well, getting into, uh, into this accident, again, it was a Part 135 uh, on-demand charter being operated by a company that uh, was providing these travel services. They had assigned a, uh, a female captain, male first officer, and they were uh, operating a Lear 60 that uh, had repositioned from New Jersey, Teterboro, down to Columbia, South Carolina in uh, the nighttime hours of uh, September 19th of 2008. The crew had flown in commercially the day before into uh, New Jersey, uh, had a rest period there. They did take the airplane up on a brief um, apparent maintenance hop. Uh, there were some issues that, uh, that were of concern. Some maintenance had been done. They took it up on a short hop. Apparently, the airplane uh, was found to be good to go and uh, returned to service. They then, uh, again, had an uh, extended rest period during the day. We don't know exactly what their activities were. The NTSB um, just talked about the fact that they had the opportunity to have several periods of, quote, rest and possibly sleep, but they did not provide any information with regard to the crew's activities on uh, in the earlier part of the day, that is what time they woke, woke up on the day of the accident, whether or not they went down, had breakfast, lunch, uh, walked around, hung out, whatever they did. Uh, there is no discussion about those uh, particular activities, which we'll talk about later on when we, uh, when we talk about fatigue issues. But the crew did reposition the airplane down to uh, Columbia, South Carolina to pick up uh, uh, four passengers to, uh, to transport them to uh, Van Nuys Airport in California. Uh, they, they arrived relatively late, um, just around uh, 10 o'clock or 10.30. Uh, they were on the ground for a very short period of time. The passengers arrived and, uh, and then they were positioned into the airplane. Now, Again, we'll, we're going to talk about specific things off the cockpit voice recorder, but in a general overview, 
the passengers were loaded. The crew was performing um, their duties as far as doing checklists and, and providing a passenger briefing. Um, some of it was muddy. That is, cockpit voice recorder didn't have a clear um, uh, recording of specifically what kind of briefing the uh, the captain may have given to the passengers, but the board believes that it was sufficient enough that in the end, when this accident did happen, um, it did help uh, their survivability. That being said, as the crew had gone through their checklist items, there was a bit of, uh, of confusion, as, uh, as we will discuss, between the captain and the first officer with regard to not only the taxi instructions to the runway that they were going to be uh, using, which was runway 11, but then eventually they got into a bit of uh, some confusion with regard to the, the pre-takeoff briefing, especially with regard to rejected takeoff uh, procedures. And we'll get, again, more specific with that here shortly. But that being said, they, uh, the crew finishes up their, their taxi to, uh, to the runway and during the course of taxi and to runway one, one, they went the wrong direction. They were given a clearance to, uh, to taxi to runway one, one via uniform taxiway uniform. And they were supposed to cross over the approach end of runway two, three to get to one, one. Um, there was a discussion between the captain and the first officer as to what direction they should go on taxiway uniform. It ended up being that they went the wrong direction. When they found themselves on the wrong end of uh, another runway, uh, the controller drew their attention to it and then said, well, you're going to have to make a 180 degree turn to taxi back to where you need to go. And of course, that would have been a bit difficult on the taxiway. So the controller uh, did get permission to allow them to back taxi on runway 29, the complete length of the runway to get to runway one, one or the approach end of runway one, one. Um, again, that doesn't sound like much and yes, that can happen. And especially if this crew wasn't familiar with uh, that particular airport, but they were given specific instructions. And uh, of course, uh, I don't know whether or not they were actually looking at an airport chart to figure out where they should have gone or how they should have gone. It would appear that they didn't have that, but again, um, that would be speculation since we don't have any kind of video recording of what they had in front of them, what they were referring to other than the conversation. But we'll talk about that too in, uh, in more specificity when we get into the actual cockpit voice recorder. Nonetheless, they get to the, uh, the, the uh, end of the runway, they position, they uh, turn on all the lights, transponder, I call it lights, camera, action where they've got the cockpit all set up, ready to go. They power up and they motor down the runway. First officer makes the 80 knot call first and the captain is flying the airplane. And uh, as they're accelerating through the 80 knot call and then of course through V1, the cockpit voice recorder records the sound of a bump or a thump, <clears throat> which was very loud. And it is later identified as one of the right uh, one of the main gear tires coming apart. Um, there is a bit of a discussion between the captain and the first officer. Of course, the, uh, the initial response is, what was that? They discuss it, but now that air airplane is still accelerating. Uh, 
down the runway. And immediately after the sound that is recorded on the CVR that the, the crew identifies or acknowledges, they didn't know exactly what it was. The first officer is telling the captain, go, 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 because he knows he's very aware of the, uh, the speed. Um, the captain, rather than just continue to, uh, to, to, to continue to get the airplane airborne, they get into, again, a bit of a quandary as to the, the, the captain uh, questioning the first officer. He's saying, go, go, go. And she's going, no, we're not going. Well, that period of indecision, of course, the airplane had still accelerated and was accelerating uh, down this 8,000 foot runway. By the time the captain chose to reject the takeoff formally, of course, this was a high speed abort or a high speed reject, which we all know that fly these types of airplanes, you don't do. I mean, you basically are committed to flight, literally, unless those engines fall off and you have no way of getting the airplane in the air, you're committed to flight. And in fact, she had briefed that as part of the pre-takeoff uh, briefing with the first officer. But again, she decides to try a high-speed abort, and uh, there was a lot of energy in that airplane. She's standing on the brakes. Uh, one of the issues that the board has identified and gone into great discussion about was the fact that uh, unbeknownst to them with the damage that had occurred based on the tire shredding and, and striking the bottom of the aircraft up in the wheel well and, and other areas, um, as they tried to not only engage the brakes, but engage the uh, thrust reversers, thrust reversers did not engage. And in fact, the engine started to spool up to cause positive thrust, which exacerbated, of course, their ability to stop. The first officer became very aware of the fact that they were going off the end of the runway. And just prior to exiting the end of the runway, he made a radio call to the tower saying to roll the equipment because he knew what was happening. They go off the end of the runway over. There was an overrun um, at the end of that particular runway. They, they clearly went beyond the overrun. They went through the airport boundary fence over a highway and struck a, uh, a, about a 45 degree vertical embankment on the other side of this road that instant, instantly stopped the airplane. Of course, the two pilots were killed, two other passengers were killed. The airplane immediately caught fire and the two surviving passengers were in the very uh, back end of the airplane. They were able to extricate themselves. One, uh, unfortunately, I think Todd, uh, one of them had significant or severe burns they both had uh, significant burns but uh, they did survive the event um, getting out of the airplane so with that being said uh, you know there are a lot of different issues that the board would have to of course explore during the course of this accident investigation now again the airplane was equipped with a cockpit voice recorder did not have a flight data recorder the safety board used the cockpit voice recorder and put a timeline together um, and was determined and it was determined that, of course, the acceleration of the airplane appeared to be nominal going through at least the 80 knot call. The airplane continued to accelerate even after um, the tire started to come apart. So let's go through, of course, the cockpit voice recorder and uh, and and talk about some of the issues, gentlemen, that, uh, you know, I noted, and I hope uh, you noted as well, 
um, the, the cockpit voice recorder transcript, uh, again, is produced by the NTSB after an audition. They sit down. There are a lot of times where they put in, of course, the actual discussions that were taking place as they can understand them between the crew and, of course, any, any pertinent noises that they may hear in the background. A lot of times if there's some non-pertinent conversation, uh, you know, they may be talking about the weather. They may be talking about stuff that the board doesn't believe are pertinent or relative to the accident. They may just generically describe it as non-pertinent, non-aviation discussion. Um, but the transcript picks up where the, uh, it's apparent that the captain is, a, is talking on a cell phone to someone, doesn't identify who but you can tell that she is on the uh, on a cell phone of some sort talking to someone about uh, when they're taking off, um, about how long it's going to take to uh, to get to the other end, about five hours. And uh, and the fact that they intend to uh, probably spend some time in a hotel. So as she's talking about that, um, of course, they're getting ready for the engine start and there is this brief conversation about, hey, let's get the checklist out. Let's get ready to do our thing. And, and again, the environment is such that you have the passengers already seated in the back. The door is closed. But to get into these conversations about some of the catering that was on the airplane. And if you look at uh, the cockpit voice recorder, the time hack 2339-24, um, as they're getting ready to, uh, to go through their aviation stuff, that is start the engines, all of a sudden the discussion comes up as to, oh, the cabin lights are on. Why are the cabin lights on? Do they want them on? No, they don't want them on. So now they've kind of disrupted that, that flow of getting ready to do a checklist, talking about the lights that are on in the back, and they don't understand why the cabin lights are on, whether the passengers may have turned those cabin lights on, or they are part of the emergency lighting system um, that was armed and because the airplane was on the ground uh, may have triggered the, uh, the lighting, the illumination of those lights. That takes them, you know, uh, about a minute or so to, to discuss that. They drop that issue and then uh, they decide that they're going to get back to their checklist items. But then again, they start talking about catering again. And that is, Hey, is there enough water on board, you know, for these guys, where's the water? So right there, there's a little bit of discontinuity in the flow of what these two crew members are doing prior or just as they're getting ready to, uh, to start engines. You know, and, Greg, as, as I'm looking through this uh, piece, I, uh, this morning, as I went through it, I was thinking back of, of my past where uh, the, the charter company that I worked for and how we handled the beginning of every flight. And this jumped out at me uh, like a big red flag, the way that they, they were handling this. You know, why, why were they so close to getting into this airplane and getting it ready? as the passengers arriving. What, was that their normal routine? Was something abnormal? Because we always made sure that our pilots had to be there 
And if they weren't ready, if they were doing their, their chores with the catering and the rest of it, the, pay, the, the passengers don't get on. We've held yeah. them in their, their cars that they show up at the airport with, or we've held them in the FBO. And the, the captain was responsible for getting all of this done and he could delegate to the first officer, but they had to get it done before they brought the passengers on because it is disruptive. And yet, the, and yet we look in the two or three minutes here where they're bouncing back and forth. So it's pretty easy to lose sight. It's pretty loose, I guess is what I'm saying. John, you make a good point. And, and that's what I was talking about with a bit of this discontinuity is trying to systematically you know, prepare you as your, as a crew, you've gotten the passengers settled. You should have been, you know, looking at the fact of whether or not you had enough catering water, all that kind of nonsense before you guys are ready to, you know, actually start doing these aviation things. We, you know, we talk about sterile cockpit all the time. We talk about non-pertinent issues all the time or non-pertinent conversation. And the board is, uh, is always looked at these distractions. Are they distractions? Did they get them off their game? Were these folks really organized? And when you look at the, the qualifications of the crew and the training that they went through, according to some of the, uh, the notes, um, of course, in the training environment, they were organized. But now you have to translate these things into real world. And we're going to get more into that discussion. But you do bring up a good point. And that is systematically, you know that you got the passengers coming. Okay, take care of all of those cabin items and, and those kinds of questions so that, you know, once you start, doing uh, airplane related uh, checklists and, and starts and that kind of thing that uh, you're, you're not distracted by little things like this, because again, it has a discontinuity that in the, in the short term doesn't sound like much and pilots that are listening to this are probably going, yeah, that, you know, happens all the time. You know, you, you don't know what the hell you're talking about from a human factor standpoint. We do know what we're talking about because we see these as the precursors two other errors that occurred downstream. And, and we're going to talk about those errors. Yes. You know, that there should be water in the, in the, uh, in the holder. Well, if that person had prepared the cabin properly, they would have said there is water in the holder. Those are just indications of an operation. That's a little bit on the weak sloppy side. Yeah. So once these uh, once they focus their attention on uh, on getting the airplane um, spooled up, of course they go through the engine start and checklist items are completed. The board didn't have any issue with uh, with them going through any of the uh, start procedures, the cockpit setup, or anything like that. Um, they did, the first officer did make a comment, or the co-pilot did make a comment. Uh, we're pretty heavy, so I'm going to rebug for flaps eight and made a statement or asked the permission of the captain, hey, is that okay? And she says, no, that's fine. So now that's, that's laid out the basis for the fact that the airplane was heavy. And in fact, the NTSB uh, calculated that the airplane may have been as much as 300 pounds over gross. Again, while, yeah, maybe this airplane can handle it under those conditions, there is a bigger picture here. We're going to get back to that with regard to the, the, the sequence of events and then all these little things that add up to create an environment of some of the things that uh, you were talking about, Job, then that was, you know, maybe it was too loose or a little too sloppy as far as the whole operation is concerned. 
but they go through a briefing. Um, they're talking about the fact that, yeah, even though they're heavy, they got uh, plenty, quote, plenty of runway. And, um, and they finish doing their, their checklist items. They get the airplane set up. Of course, uh, everything is up and going. Flight controls, everything uh, appears to be normal. And again, the board finds nothing wrong with, uh, with any of the uh, start procedures. Uh, they do go through, of course, the cleanup items for, uh, for the checklist, making sure that all the instrumentation is up, including TCAS, all of the uh, gyros are erect and things like that. And, and so for the next uh, at least eight minutes or so, they're good to go. Now, where, again, we start to get into some issues is uh, at 2345, 29 on the CVR. And these are all in local time. So we know that this is 1145 at night. So again, this is going to be a night operation. They're going to be flying a night cross country. We don't know what the crew had done during the middle of the day, what time they got up on the day of the accident. We do know that uh, late in the day, late in the evening, they ended up repositioning this airplane down to Columbia. So uh, we, we actually don't know whether they are at the start of a cycle that is, were they only up three, four, five, six hours versus have they already been up 10, 11, 12 hours? Um, and I think that's critical and we'll talk about that. But uh, again, they start, to, uh, they start to talk about the runway that they're gonna use based on what they know the wind is, which was uh, 070. It was, um, it was uh, brief to be at eight knots with gusts. So that's, that's the pre-setup for them determining what runway they're going to use. And uh, they knew what the, the wind conditions were. Now, what was interesting is, is what I said earlier is that they got a little confused with regard to the taxi instructions. Ground controller, after they uh, initially called the tower and, and the ground controller and requested taxi, uh, they were given... Uh, that uh, you were clear runway two nine via taxiway uniform. Actually, the wind zero seven zero at seven, gust one six altimeter. And what are you going to want to do? Which runway do you want? And of course, they talk about it, and they uh, they decide that they're going to runway uh, one one. And um, and so of course they reply to the air traffic controller. Okay, that's what we're gonna do. So he gives them Roger taxi, runway 11 via uniform, cross the approach end of 23 to taxiway November, to taxiway alpha, and then taxiway runway 11 via alpha. The short response is uniform November alpha to 11, and then of course the, uh, the call sign of the airplane. The captain immediately says, and hold short of 2-2, I think it was. Well, right there, just that little segment. She's listening to what the controller just told them about taxiing to runway 1-1 via uniform, cross the approach end of runway 2-3, and then continue. She comes back with hold short of 2-2, I think it was. First off, there was no hold short. And second off, she got the runway wrong. It wasn't 2-3 two, two, or 2-2, two, two, it was 2-3. Two, 
So again, is there some distraction going on? Is she doing other things? Is she tired and just not really plugged in? Don't really know that. All we know is that all of a sudden now, here you had some confusion about the taxi. Here you have some confusion even about the readback um, because she's thinking something totally different than, than what was actually transmitted. And then um, the, the uh, first officer corrects her and says, I think he said we could cross, cross it at uniform November Alpha to 1-1. And she says, oh, he did? Again, it's these little things. And as an investigator, you start focusing. If somebody is just reading this, especially pilots, a lot of them just blow that off. Yeah, it happens all the time. I was doing other things, didn't really hear it, things like that. Well, these are critical in dissecting the performance of the crew and all of the little precursors that set one up for an accident. And then it says, okay, and we're going to get out of here. Uh, well, I think we have to go left out of here, don't we? That is talking about leaving the ramp area and then getting onto uniform. And they get into, again, another discussion for about two or three minutes with regard to which way they need to go and how they need to get there. They eventually do start to head out on uniform. And uh, they're, again, as soon as they get on that taxiway, they make a, a, a turn in the wrong direction. So uh, at 2349, um, the ground controller comes in and he says, I think, uh, I think you're on uniform there. You need to go the other way on uniform and cross the approach end of two, three, actually. Yeah, you'll need, you, you'll need to make a 180 degree turn, looks like, and go, go on uniform and go out towards two, nine. Right there, again, there is this confusion. They end up having uh, to be corrected. And not only was it the, the captain, but now you have to think about, well, where was the first officer after he basically had tried to correct the captain with regard to the direction? They both got it wrong. So again, were they looking at a chart? Did they really understand where they were going? And then, of course, uh, they ended up going the wrong direction. And, and so you know, putting all of the pieces together, they acknowledge, okay, yeah, we're going to need to make a 180 degree turn. And that's when the controller basically says, you know what, hold on a second. Um, and uh, whatever the case was, he got permission to issue them a clearance to back taxi on, um, on runway 29 out to runway 11. Have you guys in reading this in, uh, in looking at just this part of the conversation identified any other issues or, you know, or anything of significance? Well, the only thing that I, I took from this is we started off badly, poorly, and it continued. And they just kept going down this, this rabbit hole without taking a, a pause, a timeout and resetting. So yeah. they got themselves out of step and we all do it. I'm not, I'm not uh, saying that uh, I haven't done something similar. Uh, we all do it, and it's sometimes difficult to recognize. But when we're looking back on it, Monday morning quarterbacking, I mean, it's raising flags. What's going on? And I, I agree with what you said in the beginning, Greg. The first thing that jumps into my mind when I see this, this sequence of, of steps that are out of step, disconnected, is... These guys have a, a piece of fatigue in their system. 
Yeah. And, and John, you know, one of the other things for our listeners and people that aren't really familiar when you're looking at these transcripts or even listening to a cockpit voice recorder like uh, you and I have over the years, we as humans do not talk in complete sentences all the time. And it's very, very evident when you start reading a cockpit voice recorder or any kind of transcript, a deposition transcript or anything else, because we'll start to say something, something the other person may cut you off, you may not complete a thought. And then all of a sudden, as investigators, we're trying to piece together these conversations, how they relate to each other, the context of these conversations. And since we don't have the emotion in the written word, we don't know what the, uh, the inflections are, what may be of importance or not importance, what may be uh, you know, an emphasis point by one person or the other. All we have is words on the written paper. So we, do, for us, we do have something in addition to that. The uh, two survivors, at least one of them noted um, that the briefing that was given by the captain was shorter and seemed to be incomplete. And the captain said something like, oh, you guys seem like you know your way around here. And basically told them, here are the fire extinguishers, here are the exits, and left. And although the witness statements didn't stay, say how often they did this, these were two high-level uh, performers who do this kind of private or on-demand transportation on a regular basis. And even then, it seemed out of place, the kind of briefing that was being given. Was it a, a little sloppy? Was there a lack of operational discipline because they didn't go through the formal briefing that she said that uh, she had given? Uh, yeah, I gave them the briefing. Well, we don't know exactly what that means, but the, it's obvious that the passengers described what type of briefing she gave. And of course, then in their uh, operational discipline and in operating the airplane, at least on the taxi portion of it, where they were, there was a level of confusion. Uh, you know, did they actually use all the tools available to them that they should have used to get to the proper runway, things like that. So again, from an investigative standpoint, sometimes it's very difficult because you're, you're looking at the written words, you're trying to complete possibly the sentence or put into a, a context of the discussion, yet we don't have the emotional inflections and that kind of stuff. So uh, again, as investigators, you can't blow things off. We look at the little things to see how they trend because it's those trends that are developing that's gonna give us the overall perspective of the, ent the entire operation of the aircraft. So as they, uh, they finished up their, uh, as they were taxiing, when they get into uh, the, the pre-departure briefing, this was the briefing given by the captain. Okay, we've got plenty of runway, so we'll abort for anything below 80 knots. After V1 and before V2, engine failure, uh, fire malfunction, loss of directional control, all the big things after V2, we'll go ahead and take it into the air and treat it as an in-flight emergency. I think this is probably a pretty good option to come back to, come back to unless we have like a complete hydraulic failure or something. And uh, then we'll look for a longer runway nearby, probably Charleston. After takeoff, it was heading 150 up to 4,000. Of course, the first officer says, great. Good, correct. She asked any comments or questions with regard to the briefing. And again, he brings up, uh, well, a reference between 80 and V1, you're only aboarding for the fire failure, loss of directional control. 
She says, yes. And, and then she adds an inadvertent deployment of the thrust reverser. So, okay, they're pretty much good to go. And, um, and as they taxi into position, uh, of course, they, they line up, they're ready to go. Okay, we're cleared for takeoff. They go through the, uh, the pre-departure or pre-takeoff items with uh, collision, anti-collision lights, the ignitions, and of course, auto spoilers being armed, things like that. That all appears to be normal. They get a wind check. The wind is now uh, 070 at eight gusting one four. And again, she is listening to what the controller just gave her and gave the first option that is wind seven, uh, 070 at eight gust one four. She comes back to the first officer who says 010 at eight. That is totally different than what she just heard from the controller. So again, where is she? Is she distracted again by something? I mean, there, there's something going on there um, that she just heard in her ear, the controller tell them 070 at eight, and she's coming back 010 at eight. It makes no sense because then uh, the, the first officer is complicit with what he heard her just say by saying, uh-huh. Well, now she, now he has just confirmed this confirmation bias. That is, she had something wrong and he confirmed it as a positive. That little, that little piece, again, you've got to stack these small things up to really understand in the grand scheme of things what's going on because she comes back based on his confirmation of what she had said about 010, she comes back and says, okay, so pretty much straight down the runway. Well, that's if the wind was 010, but the wind wasn't 010, the wind was 070. And when you're on one way, one, one, that's a whole lot different. So again, uh, that it's just kind of blown off. They go right through that and they begin their takeoff roll. And as they accelerate and he, uh, he makes the, uh, the power set statement and then cross checks at 80 knots, um, that occurs at 2355.00. And 12, well, at least 12 seconds later or 10 seconds later, um, he calls V1. And then two seconds after that or about a second and a half after that is when they hear the loud bang which the NTSB has identified is when the tire let go. And the first officer immediately tells her, go, keep going, you know, um, because the airplane is accelerated through V1 into VRV2. And there's an undescribable or unintelligible statement. And the first officer is still telling or still saying, go, go, go. And the captain comes back uh, a second later saying go with a question mark there is no confidence there is no command authority she's questioning the first officer as to you you want me to keep going and he's going yeah go 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 because that was the brief they're beyond v1 they're through vrv2 you're going to fly that airplane and and um and he's and with that question that becomes a debate. Meanwhile, that airplane is still accelerating, still motoring down the runway. Even if it has a problem, 
they're at flying speed and they should have been flying. But she comes back with, I don't know, we're not going. Now they're now they're in the high speed reject or high speed abort. When she knew, based on her briefing, based on her training, based on her understanding of policies and procedures, that you're not going to make a high speed abort. Yet she chose to make a high speed abort. That was contrary to everything she has ever learned. And she's typed on multiple airplanes, including the, the Lear 60. She is the PIC on this Lear 60. She just briefed that beyond VR, or basically V1, going through VR V2, they're flying. Yet her reaction in the real world is that we're not going. And that was the beginning of the end. Because now they're trying to get the airplane stopped. You can hear on the cockpit voice recorder the application of the brakes, and most likely they were standing on those brakes. Um, they tried to get the thrust reversers out. Uh, again, little did they know that the operation of the thrust reverser was, was screwed up because of the damage that was caused by uh, the tires letting go. And, um, and, and the first officer, he's well plugged in. He's, he's feeling that, hey, this isn't working. So he's telling them or telling the captain, shut them off, shut them off presumably meaning shut the engines down, try and get this thing, you know, <laughs> slowed down because what's working right now with the, with these engines spooled up is that they're accelerating, not decelerating. And he, he figures out um, what's going on here. And then um, he, he makes the comment, he gets on the radio and he tells uh, ground controller, uh, roll the equipment. We're going off the end. Boom, they go off the end through the boundary fence over the road and impact the, uh, the uh, um, embankment on the other side. Again, you know, trying to really get into specificity in a show like ours where you're dissecting each of these things is a bit difficult. And of course, uh, our viewers and, and listeners can pull this, uh, this report off the NTSB for themselves. And, and fill in the rest of the detail. But with those highlights, John and Todd, I mean, there are a number of things that uh, were of concern to me with regard to the way they were operating, the way they briefed, and of course, the actions and reactions of the crew. It's, it's a pretty messy uh, pre-flight or preparation for flight and takeoff procedure. I mean, it's just too many places, as I said a few minutes ago. I mean, they got off on a wrong foot and they were never able to get themselves back swayed away the way they should. Yeah. And when and you... It does lead itself to a good, strong look at fatigue. I mean, it's pushing midnight. We don't know what they did all day, what their activities were. Uh, and we've used these precursors in the past that, you know, the NTSB has. These types of uh, precursors, the confusion, um, you know, readbacks not being correct as, as, as at least the basis for looking strongly at fatigue, um, other than somebody just yawning or making the statement, man, I'm tired. And so, again, and we'll get to that, but I, I think that that should have been looked at. But when we look back at the captain and, and her history and that kind of thing, um, she had a total of 3,100 hours of total time at least 2,000 plus as pilot in command. Um, some curious things here. 
And that is she had accumulated 35 hours of total time in the Lear 68 of which were as pilot in command and about 118 um, hours in the uh, Cessna 650, which uh, if I remember right, that's a citation three, um, which were accumulated at the, uh, at the company that uh, she was flying for at the time of the accident. Um, an interesting note by the NTSB was that before the two-day trip pairing that included the accident flight, the captain's most recent experience as PIC of a Lear 60 was on August 16 of 2008. And Todd, you and I had this discussion. That was about a month before the actual accident. So she wasn't piloting command on the 60 in that 30-day uh, period. But according to the board, uh, she did accumulate 19 hours as second in command on the Lear 60 in that period of time and 15 hours as PIC on, uh, on the citation. Um, while again, many pilots are going to talk about, well, that's normal. You know, that's, that's just the way business is. It's, it's, this is ops normal. Again, it's all about whether or not with 3,100 hours and not much time as pilot in command. And as they're saying, she only had eight hours as pilot in command on the Lear 60. Now she's in a position where she's got to have command authority, very good command authority. The, there were some discontinuities here. Of course, when uh, she got hired by the company um, as a new hire, instead of putting them through a check ride to evaluate their, their skills, abilities, knowledge, and competency, the company thought that because of her background, where she came from, some of the airplanes that she had been flying, they chose not to uh, put her through the typical new hire check ride. Found that kind of curious. Why? Just because she comes in with this experience does, I mean, how do you have, you have to really evaluate the talent. You can't just go on paper saying, well, hell, she's experienced, you know, because she's got this much time. She's flown this many, these uh, numbers of airplanes. She has these type ratings. We as the investigators would never do that. We would never take that at face value. We're looking for, okay, let's see what kind of training. Let's dissect all of this. Um, yet this employer chose not to, uh, to put her through, um, through the typical new hire training. There's another potential organizational issue here. Uh -huh. This aircraft was a relatively new aircraft. I think it was on the order of under 200 hours uh, that this aircraft had been flying. Barely and over 100. Yeah, it was, a new, it was new into their fleet. And, um, and again, you know, a couple of evaluator notes on just the captain's performance in training. And that training, it said the evaluator who conducted the Lear 60 proficiency check stated that the captain performed, quote, very much, end quote, within standards, and that the outcome of the check ride was never in doubt. He stated that the captain displayed good crew resource management skills and had good command of the airplane. Great. That's in a very controlled environment. It's called training. And you can be ace of the base, if you will in these training environments. I've done a number of accidents during my career, both at the NTSB and after, where, yeah, in training, these guys or gals were all ace of the base. They could make the airplane dance in training, but got into a real situation where high stress, high anxiety in the real world played a factor. They didn't perform as advertised. They did not perform 
as they were trained. They did not react as they were trained. They did not react as they briefed. And the question is why? And, and again, that's the question that the board brought up in the very end, and we'll talk about that here. Um, in addition, uh, there were other folks that had flown with, uh, with this captain. And in fact, uh, one of them was uh, uh, a Lear 60 instructor and made the statement. He stated in his notes that uh, the, the captain displayed excellent CRM and that uh, he does not give that kind of rating very often to pilots. So again, they're saying that this, uh, this uh, young lady had great CRM skills, but in the very end, the board was very critical <laughs> about their CRM, the CRM skills displayed by both pilots. So here now, ace of the base, great in training, but in a real world event, CRM went right out the window as I uh, identified by the NTSB. Now, here's the, here's a critical part that I would have really talked about more in a probable cause or contributing factor statement. And that is uh, the board put in there that global exec aviation director of operation who had trained with the captain and had flown at least 30 hours with her described the captain as quote laid back which he considered, quote, typical of a less experienced captain. He, he described her decision-making skills as excellent and conservative. He stated that he would work with her on being more vocal in her command authority, but that she was, quote, above normal for a new captain. Again, she lacked that command authority. High stress, high anxiety situation, critical situation here. She did not display, based on all the facts, conditions, and circumstances, that command authority that was necessary at the point where they knew something was wrong. The guy who did was the first officer going, go, 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 man. Let's keep going. She got into a period of indecision. She was indecisive. She did not. It was all contrary to what these folks are saying about her. And the question is, why? Again, it was great in training. And you're demonstrating in a controlled environment. And yes, the pressure is a little different than in, you know, high stress, high anxiety of the real world. But she got into a period of indecision that likely cost them. And in fact, it did cost them their life because rather than do what she had been trained to do, what she knew was required of them to do, and that is not do a high speed abort, but fly that airplane, she did just the opposite of everything. And the old adage of train the way you fly, fly the way you train, she didn't follow that at all. You know, we're talking about 10 minutes of her life, roughly, uh, from the time they get to the airport and, and uh, rush through everything and get this airplane down on the runway. And the, the number of mistakes and miscues in those 10 minutes, it's just, I didn't count them, but there's over a dozen. And you know, somewhere in, the, in that formula, one of the two of them should have said something about let's take a time out. Let's pause here. We're rushing. We're putting ahead. We're making mistakes one after the other after the other. Uh, yeah. And the, and the first officer, I mean, here you got a guy who's got 8,000 hours. He's got 
a lot of PIC time. He was a captain on a variety of different airplanes. So he, I mean, and he had about 300 hours in the Lear 60 versus about eight or, or a hundred or whatever it was um, in the, uh, in the 60 for the captain. And so when you, when you look at that, he was plugged in, he immediately reacted to uh, the bump in the night, if you will, that sound. And he knew what their speed was. He was, he had very good situational awareness and he's telling the captain, go, go, go. And she's getting into this. I'm still trying to process what's going on versus just react as they were briefed and trained to react. And that is, we're already beyond this speed. We're going to make this airplane fly. Yeah. Yeah. Decision-making and we'll never know what affected her decision-making. Yeah. Uh, and, and again, you know, we, uh, you know, and, and again, it may sound that I'm being critical, but as an accident investigator, I mean, these are the kinds of things that we looked at. It's obvious that the NTSB looked at it. They just didn't discuss it the same way I would have discussed it in the report and then factored it into uh, a contributing factor or even a uh, probable cause, a direct cause of, of the event. But uh, again, it's, it's crew performance. And yeah, where, where did fatigue factor into all this? Were they tired? Were they distracted? I mean, is it a lack of operational discipline? And John, you know that way back when, you know, management uh, was factored into a causal statement by a good friend of ours and previous board member, and that was Dr. John Lauber. He's the one that really started saying, hey, we as the board need to be looking at management and their contribution to the operation of the aircraft. Even though they're not in the cockpit, they're the ones that train the crew, select the crew, you know, set the standards, you know, have an operational oversight, uh, require operational discipline. And I didn't see management discussed here. Um, you know, they talk right. about, you know, they talk about the captain and the fact that, okay, well, possibly, possibly her lack of, of experience as a captain. I mean, that's a big, that's a huge issue here. You right. Know? There's no discussions about it at all. And another, another area where there was no discussion. Throughout this, there were several parts of this report and the supporting documents where they seemed to be in a hurry. In fact, the witness statements were saying that one of them said that they started rolling the aircraft before the passengers were properly seated and belted. And I'm thinking, okay, this took off right before midnight. There was nothing in there that said there's a storm bearing down on them. There was nothing in there that said explicitly they had to take off by midnight. Yeah. They're going across the United States. And hurrying a few minutes at the beginning of it isn't going to do much because who knows what kind of weather you'll have or traffic in, in Los Angeles. Yep. So why were they in a hurry? I don't have an answer to that question. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, a lot of those questions will never be answered. But um, again, you look at crew performance, but all of these things we're talking about with crew performance started before this airplane actually took off, John. Yeah. It did. And there's a, there's a good lesson here. It gets back to what I said, what I say after almost every one of these podcasts, and that is pre-planning your flight. What did they do? They get there so late that they, they had the catering issue. I mean, you know, I know catering's uh, important. Uh, we used to go to great lengths on the FBO that I worked for about the catering. Right. And, and, uh, Lots of lots of unhappy people in the catering got left behind as well. 
uh, why why not just pause for a little bit and sort of reset? I, I that's the, I keep coming back to it because that's what I see. Misstep, 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 and yeah. at some point the light bulb should go and say, "Okay, time up. Let's start this all over again. Get it right." But it's not, and that's part of your pre-planning. Yeah, I but mean, we've got to. I'm sorry, John. I was just going to say, but we have to step back now even further because this crew got into a situation that really started with maintenance. Yes. Oh, I, my, my, uh, I get angry when I read the maintenance piece of, of this particular one. Uh, you know, I've been involved with a lot of airplanes that have blown tires over the years. And I've read a lot of reports of accidents uh, where tires were... Uh, improperly serviced and in fact we lost a dc-8 uh we're full of people in uh, in the middle east because of a tire servicing problem and uh, too many people mechanics and others uh look at it very lightly with the tires you can't tell because of the the way these tires are constructed for airplanes you can't look at them and see a low tire or if you do look at one and see it low that's a tire change because it's grossly deflated. Yeah. And there are limits. Unlike your car, we can go out and the tire is, is, is noticeably, you know, halfway down. You can fill it up and drive. An airplane, aviation tires, if you lose like uh, 40 pounds of pressure in a, in a 200-pound tire, you're going to change it. Well, let, let's let's explore that a little bit because that's that was really the focus of this investigation, and that was uh, some of the critical aspects of tire pressure on the Lear 60, and it required some really diligent oversight because uh, the board talked about it. They put a whole presentation together as part of their uh, presentation to the uh, board members, and to to of course consider, and that was uh, these tires. The, the main main gear tires, like you said, are almost at 200 pounds or 200 pounds of, uh, of pressure. 220. 220. And that they have a leak rate or, you know, they, they leak down 2% or 5 pounds, what, uh, per day or something to that effect? Okay. So, the, so the general rule is you're going to lose uh, a percentage of your, your rear pressure, about 2% a day. That's not every tire. Some tires don't leak down that much. And occasionally you'll have a tire that'll leak down a little bit more. But the point is you could only go a couple of days uh, without checking the tire pressure before you start to get into the critical portion of the tire. And it's not just losing all the pressure. One of the things that happens to a tire when you operate it less than the desired pressure inside is you start to flex in the sidewalls in a different way than you do when you're normally driving down the road. It's your car as well, not only just airplane tires. All right? And it's going to build up heat. In today's tires, we have polyester linings uh, in the sidewalls, and we have steel belts under, under the thread. And as you build up this heat, you're destroying the fibers in the sidewalls inside the tire where it gets its strength to keep it on the rim even. So running an underinflated tire for just a day or two with multiple landings is a disaster for the structure of the tire. 
It's absolutely yeah. going to destroy it in short order. And I've actually taken tires apart that haven't that were pulled off an airplane, not because they were worn, but because they were down. And the material that we find inside the tire, it's like flaky pieces of rubber, and you can see the the uh, the fiber inside them with the reinforcements, where the tire was starting to self-destruct when they pulled it off. Even though it had good thread, it was pulled off because of low pressure, and the tire was already in, on its way to being uh, destroyed, well on its way to be destroyed. And that was going to be a, a tire that's going to go boom on some takeoff or landing in the not too distant future from that point in time. So, and John, when you know, when we're talking about tires, <clears throat> of course, as a general aviation pilot, whether I'm checking a Piper Comanche or a Cessna 172, yeah, I can visually see it. It's easily accessible. I can examine it looking for, you know, all sorts of things. I don't carry a pressure gauge with me in my pocket and I'm not checking it. And, and we know from, you know, operating in our car that every time you put a pressure gauge on it, you're going to dump some pressure anyway. In this particular case where, of course, you have a more complex system um, it, and the location of these tires underneath the wing of a Lear 60, it, yes, I mean, you can visually expect it, especially at night. You can look at it with a flashlight and see if it's still inflated, but you don't really know what the actual pressure is. So where is the expectation uh, for an aircraft like this? And who's going to inspect it? Is that a maintenance function? Is that really a pilot responsibility? Should, be, should they be carrying a calibrated uh, pressure gauge in their pocket? Uh, the answer to that is yes. All right. If you don't have maintenance, if you're flying to what I call outstations away from home base, and you don't have maintenance looking at your airplane regularly, I mean, like every day after every trip, then you better have your own calibrated pressure gauge and also know where you are to get service. And you're not gonna get service in this particular case at midnight in was Columbia, South Carolina, wherever it was. Yeah. Uh, you're not gonna find a mechanic out there with a, with a nitrogen bottle at that time. You've got to think about it before. And that's a company responsibility. That gets to what you were saying a minute ago. That's the responsibility of the company, the director of maintenance to monitor that, especially in a small operation, it's not overwhelming to monitor that and make sure that you have maintenance on call available. And if we know we're having tire pressure problems with, with uh, because of the length of time that we're away from getting them checked, then you need to make those arrangements earlier in the day where you can get it done. Uh, on a Learjet, it is, it is uh, painful to service the tires. You, know, you basically have to lay down on the ground to get underneath that wing that's so low. So now, Jeff, you got, if I remember, uh, yeah, go ahead. And if I remember correctly, um, the board determined that, you know, the tire pressure um, on the failed tire, uh, it wasn't just low. I mean, it was what, 20, 30, 40 pounds low. And, and they it was apparently over 40, been, a tad over 40. And they've been operating like that for some period of time. So, you know, that that didn't just happen on the flight between Teterboro and, and Columbia, South Carolina, that has, I mean, that, that tire was under pressure, under inflated, I should say, for a long period of time, and that they had been operating that airplane on multiple flights with those, that or all of the tires uh, under inflated for some period of time. Yes. And, you know, we, we, we have great uh, hindsight on this accident 
but the fact that they, even the, the director of maintenance wasn't aware of the tire pressure uh, issues of checking them and making sure they're all right and so on. So I don't know what his experience level was. They don't mention it in the report. He sort of skated like, like I have seen uh, occur many, many other times with a maintenance related accident where the NTSB will just bring it up to the maintenance hangar doors and say it's maintenance and walk away from it. Yeah, and this one was clearly the director of maintenance uh, was not doing his job. You know, and the maintenance manual didn't help any either. The manufacturer's maintenance manual uh, called out checking the tire pressures on the checks, the letter checks that you do. And in this case, it was 300 hours. Right? The servicing manual, which is normally a different manual than the maintenance manual, will call out things like a daily tire check or, or a, a once a week tire check or whatever. This frequency is that they want, want to uh, have the tires checked. But on these, I have a rule of thumb that I used as a mechanic. The smaller the tire, the more frequently you needed to check it. Because for some reason, there seemed to be a correlation between those two. And I don't know what it is. I never did. Uh, I looked it up. But I just used that as my own rule of thumb. And, you know, just getting to this, these airplanes, uh, this airplane and their tires, under that wing, if it's raining out, you know what that means. You're going to get wet. Yeah, and and again, I mean that's that brings up a dilemma. Um, one, do we really put the onus on a pilot to be carrying a calibrated gauge around because you know that as soon as I try to screw it on the you know the gauge onto that valve, I'm going to be dumping some pressure. And like you said, I mean, <laughs> you better be in a facility that is capable of providing service. And a lot of these charter companies are flying into general aviation airports where they don't have readily accessible maintenance services and things like that. So now you're running that risk of you causing an underinflation by checking the tire pressure and that kind of stuff. And well, the pilots in a 135 can't service the tires. Yeah. 135 and 121 commercial carriers you have to get a mechanic to do it, even if it's the same airplane. So you can operate a Learjet in, in 91 and the pilots can service the tires. Yeah. But once it gets to 135, it's a, it's a maintenance function. So again, now you have these conditions and limitations and that kind of stuff. And here we have a 135 operator. Um, again, you know, they, they apparently did some maintenance or some sort of inspection on the airplane while it was up in New Jersey at Teterboro. I mean, again, there's plenty of maintenance in, in Teterboro. So I where don't know is, what was available to them in South Carolina? Again, where is the system of checks and balances in the company? And why wasn't the company examined more by the board, you know, in its oversight and in its policies and procedures to ensure that that airplane was in fact good to go? Now, the question is, because those tires are inflated, like uh, underinflated like that, was that an airworthiness issue? And was that airplane unairworthy at the time it flew? Oh, it was unairworthy at the time it flew. I don't recall seeing that in the board's report. No, they didn't mention it at all. Again, blame maintenance at the hangar doors and walk away. This, this is the, I fought this and lost the battles many, many times with the staff over that 
very issue drive further into it because if they if if the NTSB had driven in to accidents like this where we have maintenance involvement to the same level that they dig into the pilot issues the operational issues we probably would have cleaned up a lot of this these types of problems 30 years ago but we haven't i was there i left 20 years ago not quite uh, 16 years ago and we still didn't have a handle on it. We didn't, we didn't even have a mechanic that works there. We had a mechanic for a while. He quit out of frustration of, of, of dealing with engineers that knew it all. And he left and never was replaced. I mean, he used to come into me, into my office regularly talking about dealing with the engineers at the NTSB because they had all the answers. They knew it all. And that was just his boss, I think. But in any event, uh, the, the frustration level got to him and he bailed out, he left. In, in reading the, uh, the conclusions by the board, um, it said that all four main landing gear tires on the airplane were operating while severely underinflated during the takeoff roll, which resulted in tire failures. The uh, accident airplane's insufficient tire pressure was due to global exec aviation's inadequate maintenance. So they target the maintenance, but that's a very generic term. And where's the management of the maintenance and the policies and the procedures that would have required, you know, okay, you're going to do an inspection after every flight, every second flight, every third flight, whatever. Um, you know, they, they just, that's a very generic statement because of course, uh, in the probable cause statement, they say the National Transportation Safety Board determines the probable cause of this accident was the operator's inadequate maintenance of the airplane's tires, which resulted in multiple tire failures. And, and again, that's a very vanilla statement. Where's management? Where's their policy and procedure? Were the policies and procedures thorough and adequate enough to cause them to be able to do it and they failed to follow their own procedure? You and I, I, I almost said the guy's name, you and I know the, the investigator who did the tire work and that kind of detail was in the, this, I'll call it a special report that, that he had accomplished on tires. It took quite a while, actually, yeah. to do that. Uh, but that was all in the report. That should have been included in here. But there's yeah. enough in the, the, the records for the NTSB that they should have impeached that maintenance department. And they should have also impeached Learjet, because in Learjet, the tire pressures are scattered amongst several different places. There's, there's, it's not very clear at all. Like I mentioned a minute ago, the maintenance manual, which is the Bible for mechanics, it says 300 hours for a tire check. Well, that's not going to work. We know that's not going to work. And we now know it's not going to work because of a scientific study that they did. They actually went out and checked all those numbers. Right. So we know that that number of 300 hours is not an accurate number to check your tires. Uh, it's the tire check uh, is in the service manual, but maintenance doesn't normally read the service manual. So now we have a disconnect there. They don't cite it, but those things are in the report. Why wasn't that cited? Right. The FAA finally cleared it up with an AD on on this airplane i don't know if what they did on other airplanes um, i started to look for that uh recently and i got diverted away 
but I'll get back to it. Uh, so. uh, and there, there's another uh, aspect because we're seeing it a lot in general aviation airplanes. I'm dealing with it on a Piper M500, M600 issue uh, regarding nose wheel uh, tires. And that is a lot of these airplanes, like your, <laughs> unlike cars, my car, I can monitor the tire pressure in my car. But a lot of these airplanes do not have tire pressure monitoring systems. And this airplane didn't either. And, you know, the question is, you, you know, you spend, you know, two, three, four, 10, 20, $30 million on an airplane that doesn't have a tire monitoring system. Why not? I actually read a while ago uh, that one of the companies, there's more than one company that makes those tire pressure monitoring systems, but uh, they had surpassed 5,000 units sold. So they're getting out there now. Yeah. But at the time of this accident, they weren't, and Learjet chose uh, not to allow them to be installed because of the tight quarters that these uh, landing gear operates on. You know, some airplanes, the landing gear barely fits inside the airplane, and the Learjet is one of those. Yeah. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's crazy. And then, of course, um, you know, one of the, the, the big issues uh, that was talked about as well was the fact of the thrust reverser certification on this airplane and the damage from the uh, shredding tire ended up taking out uh, the, um, the wow switches and the squat switches and uh, the transition from uh, air to ground, which caused when they tried to go to uh, full reverse, ended up going to full power and accelerating the thrust rather than um, than retarding the thrust and going into a reverse thrust. Yeah, that's a, that was a surprise there. Right, so they rely upon uh, one squat switch to control the thrust reverses. I don't know if he could have done any end-off circuitry to, to put it on both, but the fact that the airplane, because of the switch was, was uh, damaged by the tire coming apart, the airplane believed it was in the air. And when it's in the air, we go to great lengths to make sure the thrust reverses can't deploy uh, the, uh, because of, we've actually lost a big airplane because of thrust reverses uh, deploying in flight. So we go to great lengths to prevent them from deploying in flight but here's a case where uh, the airplane wasn't in flight, but the sensor was destroyed. So it thought it was in flight and then we couldn't use the thrust reverser. But what's amazing there is the thrust reverser didn't deploy, but it, they allowed the engine to spool up to, to uh, like 70% or 80% power. So that is, that's a, you know, a misnomer there as well. They need to, and I, I see that they did take some action on that, but they need to make sure that there's no other airplanes out there that have that same type of problem or, or can allow that same type of problem to exist where you can advance the power on the, on the engines by selecting thrust reverses, but the thrust reverser doesn't deploy. Yeah. So that, that's a, you know, that's a, and there's no indication to the crew that that's going on. Yeah. So they need an indicator like for when the thrust reverses deploy, many uh, bigger airplanes have that. Now this airplane was built in 2007 or six and 
certification for the 60 probably goes back another 10 or 15 years before that. So that was uh, an old certification that didn't have to comply with any of the new technology and new rules. So that's another area that the FAA and they, the FAA knows this and it's incredibly difficult to correct, but allowing airplanes to carry a certification and be upgraded to a certain extent for years and years and years and, and not uh, have the systems modernized is a, is a problem. We did address it finally on big airplanes. The 737 is a good example. The, uh, you know, the first 737 was certified in the 67, 1967, if memory serves me right. And uh, we've, we're now up to uh, version 10. Max is number nine, and we have a, a 10 coming behind it. Uh, it wasn't, if it wasn't for uh, the FAA associate administrator that was in charge of certification around uh, 2000 that, re, that uh, put his foot down and said, you know, you're going to certify this airplane to, to the current standards for systems on the airplane and resulted in a big upgrade of the 737. Uh, we're going to be faced with that same problem again with some other airplanes as they age and we keep yeah. updating. Look at the, the 319, 320, 321. I mean, that, that airplane has been around since the early 90s and it's been updated many times. It carries a French certificate, a certificate from the French authorities for airworthiness and I don't I have not seen where they have a similar process. They may, but I haven't seen it. And uh, what the FAA does with that, allowing those certifications of that airplane to continue with tweaks over and over and over upgrades uh, is yet to be seen. Yeah. Well, let me, let me just uh, bring up a few more issues, concerns that I have. Of course, as I said earlier, um, the board in its uh, probable cause statement and basically being the direct cause was the underinflated tires that ended up to their uh, ended up being the failure of the tire. And then the, the captain's execution of a rejected takeoff after V1, which was inconsistent with her training and standard operating procedures. That's great. But again, there is no discussion of management, even in the contributing factors. Of course, as you were just talking about, John, um, they do tag the FAA and, um, and Learjet for the certification of the thrust reverse system. Um, but then in the last sentence, after they get into, uh, you know, the hardware issues, they say um, inadequacy or inadequate industry training standards for flight crews, entire failure scenarios. Okay. I understand that because um, that's, that's a benign type of failure that, you know, they, they didn't incorporate, but they, uh, they also say, and the flight crews poor crew resource management, which again is contrary as we talked about to what they were found in training. They were ace of the base in training, yet it didn't translate into the cockpit when they needed it the most. And now the question is, is it because the company put a pilot, at least the captain in this particular instance, in a position to fail because she didn't have a lot of experience. She hadn't flown the airplane as a PIC, you know, more than about eight hours. And 
and you know they put her in a position to fail because of her lack of experience. Should she have flown, um, or at least been, you know, uh, more time, even as an SIC on that airplane, until she really built up uh, a sufficient base of experience and knowledge, then to take it to the left seat, to the left seat. And as that, I think it was the director of operations or or whoever that flew with her said, well, she was a little laid back. I was going to help her or the company was going to help her work on her verbal command authority and all that kind of stuff. Well, hell, maybe you should have waited until all of that transpired into several hundred hours of, of time on the airplane, sort of like the first officer who had, had who had about 300, who was obviously plugged in and had more command authority than her with regard to the operation uh, during the latter stages. So my concern there is, um, why the board didn't tag them for uh, the fact that you have a captain who apparently didn't follow company procedures and policies. Where was the weight and balance? How are they 300 pounds over gross? Where was the operational discipline there? Had this been you know, a systemic issue? Is this the way they ran their sloppy operation? The board never really talked about it and definitely didn't um, uh, use that as a contributing factor in the overall operation of the airplane by a pilot in command who is supposed to be a mentor, who's supposed to set the standards, who's supposed to follow all the policies and procedures thoroughly and methodically. The fact that she didn't do possibly a thorough and methodical safety briefing to the passenger, the fact that they didn't use, and according to the passengers, they never took actual weights of the passengers, even though their policies and procedures for the company required them to do so. Where was the pilot or the passenger manifest? Couldn't find one. Don't they typically leave one behind at the FBO or uh, you know, translate it or transmit it back to the company? None of that could be found. All of a sudden now, all of these little issues are not addressed. And don't they have some sort of effect on the overall operational discipline or lack thereof that was displayed in this accident? So where's the company oversight? Where's the FAA's company oversight as far as the FAA going in there and finding deficiencies? I never saw a whole lot of discussion about that. And then, of course, you put, and, and again, yeah, she had 3,000, little over 3,000 hours of total time. But when you look in the grand scheme of things, her total experience as a pilot in command of a Lear 60 and the total time she had, actually had on the airplane, was she really the appropriate person to be in the left seat during the course of operating that airplane? Yeah, I wonder why that first officer uh, wasn't upgraded with all the time he had in type. Well, there must be something behind that story. That's not, well, you know, he was a, he was a new hire. He was considered a part-time pilot for them. And one of the statements in the report said that uh, the DO believed that he was also flying or had a job offer for another company. So again, maybe not being a full-time pilot um, that limited the position uh, that they were going to put him in. Todd, did you see any of those things? Um, because I, I, I went through this report and, and focused on uh, the big issues. Well, one of the things that struck me when I first looked at this, when it happened back in 2008, and it's a question that actually reared itself again uh, recently with uh, Kobe Bryant. Is there anything about this investigation, how it was run, that was different from the case if there had been no celebrity on board? In both cases, I couldn't find anything. Uh, sure, this was something that made the news because of who was on it. 
but there's nothing about how uh, this was investigated that that uh, you know treated them any differently. In fact, the witness statements, although they don't mention them by name, it was clear who they were getting a statement from. So, uh, you know, and this is not something that, you know, if you, well, let me put it this way. One thing that struck me as kind of odd about this, one of the survivors, after he left the aircraft, he's standing out there, he's seriously injured, probably in shock. He made two cell phone calls, one to his uh, manager and one to his mother. Now, the second one I can understand. And the first one, well, this is the kind of thing where if this came out in public that, well, this person was calling his manager after this plane burned up a couple of his crew people on board, it would be a public embarrassment. If celebrities had any sort of say in what gets done and what gets uh, published, that wouldn't be there. Clearly, it was there. And overall, there was nothing else about this that stood out other than their outside activities. Well, that said, I don't know if we'd like to segue into uh, survivability at this point, but we could do that if you want. Yeah, I would like to do that because, you know, we said earlier about the two survivors being all the way in the back uh, of the airplane, which is a horrible place to be. I've flown in Learjets in the back. And, uh, but how did they get out? What happened to the other two individuals? Well, I'll sort of start this from the, from the end. Uh, these are the only two official, uh, individuals who survived. The aircraft had such forces ex- exerted on it that according to the coroner, blunt force trauma possibly killed the two passengers who were forward in the cabin from them because there was no evidence of smoke inhalation or burn trachea or anything like that. And the uh, cockpit crew members, although they did survive the initial impact, there was some evidence of smoke inhalation. They had such serious injuries that it's unlikely in my opinion that they would have been able to even get up out of their seats and do anything. And also the forward part of the aircraft, the damage to the forward exit door was such that the bottom part of the clamshell door probably would not have been able to be open. There was no evidence that it was open, but that's not surprising because cockpit crew couldn't move. They died from smoke inhalation and thermal injuries. The other cabin uh, passengers, they probably were killed from blunt force trauma. Now, getting back to the rather poor uh, uh, briefing that the passengers got, it was good enough that the one of the passengers, Travis Barker, was the person who had the presence of mind to, as soon as they stopped moving, uh, he got up, went into the laboratory, which is right behind where they were sitting, got the emergency exit open. And uh, if he had hesitated at all, it's unlikely they would have survived at all because they were both saying, well, they both had fuel on them. Uh, one of the passengers said that there was fuel on his uh, body before he exited. And one of the uh, early uh, people, not the rescuers, but one of the first people on the scene said that he smelled fuel on both of their uh, of the survivors. Uh, they opened the door. They had fire immediately outside of the aircraft and to the uh, aft of the aircraft. And one of the survivors said that they opened it up. There was a wall of flame. He had to exit to the left to get around it. And even so, they both had severe burns. They both had their clothes on fire were tearing their clothes off, rolling on the ground. And again, because of some of the other issues that happened, I'm surprised that these two survived. And one of the things that stuck out to me, although there were firefighters on the scene within minutes, EMS personnel didn't arrive for about 45 minutes. Hmm. And the reason there was the EMS had been dispatched about the same time as the firefighters. They were on scene 
soon thereafter. But the aircraft had traversed a road, was on the embankment. There was fire on the road so that the EMS crew couldn't get there. They had to go around and t- take an extra 20 minutes. And by the time they got there, they got these uh, two uh, survivors who were very likely in shock, severely burned. And it was only then that they got uh, put on backboards, put on gurneys and taken away. Hmm. One, one of the things that I, I didn't see, and maybe you saw it when you were running through the docket, the two passengers um, in the cabin, were they belted in? They were both belted in. Uh, none of them said that they saw other people get belted in, but uh, they had flown with them before and they stated they were pretty good about being belted in. And the second surviving passenger uh, during the crash sequence saw either an object or a person hitting the ceiling of the cabin. Now, also the passenger seats where the other deceased passengers were, they were not intact. Either the seats were broken, they were out of their seat tracks, et cetera. The two rear seats where the survivors were, those seats were intact and they both wore their seat belts. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, again, you know, it's easy for us uh, when we're dissecting accidents or even as investigators. I mean, we're looking at things um, after the fact. And, and that's the whole nature of accident investigation. The, the problem a lot of times is we can be very critical of crew procedures, operations, actions, reactions, everything else. Uh, same with maintenance, same with management, FAA or anybody else who's, uh, who's uh, complicit in an accident or an incident. The fact of the matter is, is that when you have these lack or, or uh, just total failure of operational discipline, uh, a variety of things across the board, whether it's maintenance and check and tire pressures and having policies and procedures and abiding by that, or crew who go through training and do all these things and are supposed to fly the way you train and train the way you fly and then don't react the way they're supposed to be for whatever reason that is totally out of character. And then um, all of the other um, things that do have, you know, not maybe a direct causal to the accident, but can enhance safety. When you look at this in the grand scheme of things, where are the lessons and what are the lessons? Well, we know that the NTSB made a number of recommendations. Of course, some of them are heated, some of them, you know, thank you for interest in aviation safety, but we're not going to do anything. Uh, you know, that's always the frustrating thing for, uh, for investigators. But when you look at this particular accident, you have to think about not only crew resource management. You hear you have two pilots. They're professionals. They've gone through extensive training, yet they don't operate as one. They aren't in sync with each other. And unfortunately, bad things happen. But now for the general aviation pilot, you have to think about single pilot CRM. That is, you got to be able to manage you as a resource. You have to perform under the most dire of circumstances sometimes in a, in a thorough and methodical way. And you have to revert to your training. You can't do things on the fly. You can't change things on the fly. And you definitely cannot get into periods of indecision. You fly in a single engine airplane, a Cessna 210, you take off, uh, you're on a short runway, and 200 feet, the engine quits. You don't have time to debate whether or not you're going to be able to get the engine started. Should I or shouldn't I? Should I or shouldn't I? You've got to immediately react. Um, I have over the years, even in my airplane, my single engine Comanche and stuff, uh, have gone through scenarios and, 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 and have practiced an aborted takeoff. 
And it's like, what the hell did you do that for? That's a waste of time. Who cares? It's not necessarily whether or not I can get the airplane stopped on the runway. It's the act of doing it. That is taking it right up to the point where I'm going to rotate and then, you know, simulating an engine failure. And that is, okay, I'm just getting ready to pull back and start that rotation and the engine quits. What are you going to do and how are you going to do it? It's, again, not the act of physically going through it uh, per se or seeing if the airplane will, will fly or not fly. It's just creating that muscle memory because we don't typically do that in small general aviation. We definitely don't practice it in small general aviation airplanes. And again, if you're going to react and react appropriately during those critical phases of flight, then it, you have to have at least experienced it. Um, I preach this a lot, and that is there are some things that, especially as you're flying bigger, more complex airplanes, you have to train to proficiency every time you go to a SimCom, a flight safety, um, and those kinds of places where you practice these types of uh, emergencies and that kind of stuff. But of course, in, in the general aviation world, we don't get to practice those on a regular basis. And there are certain things that we can practice that you don't necessarily need to practice to a high level of proficiency. You just need to practice or at least expose yourself that, hey, in the event of this type of failure or this type of situation, at least I've been through it once to park the information uh, on the hard drive so that if it does happen in reality, boom, it's going to come up to the RAM memory and I'm going to be able to react. And, the, and the we really got to focus go more on things like that. Well, the two people on board the aircraft, I'd like to point out, that seem to have done that were the two survivors. Uh, from all uh, appearances, they reacted and reacted appropriately. They were not delaying. They didn't sit there thinking, oh, my, there's a fire here. What do we do now? They didn't try to re recover any of their onboard baggage. They took action and they got out of Dodge. Yeah. Now, a couple of things that were unstated there, um, they got out immediately. The first person who pulled the door got his buddy out. They didn't seem to make any effort to get the other people out. Perhaps they saw something or realized it was a hopeless situation. Subsequent to this, the first passenger out the door, Travis Barker, he didn't fly for 13 years. And he was very public about his PTSD. And only in the last few weeks, and this was in People magazine and whatnot, did he finally go on a flight. And it was all news with Kourtney Kardashian, his new love. But here is a passenger who had a trauma, is still dealing with it. The other passenger who had an addiction issue that he was um, away from at the time of the accidents became addicted again and died of an overdose less than a year later. Now, the coroner said it was from overdose of whatever, but I'm sure that the psychological impact of this had some impact on him. Yeah. And again, this doesn't matter if you are a celebrity or not. A traumatic event like this, whether you're a crew member, whether you're a passenger, whether you're someone who's directly involved in it, could have repercussions psychologically later on. Yeah. Well, gentlemen, um, we've definitely uh, dissected this to the nth degree. Um, and again, there are so many backstories and, and messages that a lot of folks don't read, especially when you read between the lines. And, and the things that we brought up 
I think, um, you know, are, are issues that should have been explored more, the fatigue issue and the influences of fatigue. We all know that the influence of fatigue is like alcohol. It can skew decision-making. It can delay decision-making and reactions and things like that. And, and again, we're always trying to find the positive out of these negative or these tragic circumstances. And I think more and more the reality of fatigue and, and because as a general aviation pilot, you know, you get up in the morning, you go to work, you spend all day at work, and then you go fly at night. That's a very long day. Does it delay reaction? Does it impair decision-making and things like that? That applies not only to your aviation life, but it applies in general to life, especially if you're driving a car. Um, uh, you know, speed kills, uh, alcohol kills, fatigue kills, things like that. We've seen a number of fatigue-related accidents, people falling asleep, drifting off, and, and then getting killed. So there are always lessons to be learned, and I always appreciate the fact that we have this forum to be able to talk about these accidents, bring these issues out, especially if they're not spotlighted in a report which generally are the things that are accessible to the general public or the basis for an article. And, uh, and I think that more issues, of course, with management, we, I mean, you always have to factor that in. And of course the FAA in a, in a for hire situation where it is their responsibility to do their oversight and enforcement to make sure that these types of companies, these types of operations are operating at the highest levels of safety to not only the paying passengers in the back, but of course, to their, uh, to the crew members as well. So um, as always, I appreciate uh, the forum that we have. John, I, uh, I know that I always give you the last word, but I'm going to let Todd have at least the second to the last word before you wrap us up, John, with, uh, with our sponsors and our closing remarks. Well, the, the takeaway that I'd like to give to everyone out there. Sure, this was uh, noteworthy for several reasons. And as I stated before, the celebrity part is not the important part. The most important part of that uh, to this accident was it drew, drew attention to it. This accident, when it happened, had a whole lot more press coverage than any other, I wouldn't say generic Learjet accident, but accidents happen that kill people on a regular basis. This had the situation where a lot more people knew about it. If this is how you enter into understanding this, that's a great thing. Uh, many of you remember uh, Payne Stewart back in 1999, uh, the issue of hypoxia to this day, it's almost a reflex, reflex reaction. I remind people, hey, this is related to the Payne Stewart situation. It may not be directly relevant, but it gets people's attention, gets them to sit down and maybe gets them an, gives them an opportunity to learn where if it were just, you know, Joe Schmo, they wouldn't pay attention. You know, I've been saying for a while that in accidents, there's nothing new. We've experienced uh, all of the issues over the last 60 years that the NTSB has been in business, right? We've been there. We've seen them. Why are we repeating them? Why, have, why can't we eliminate more of them than we have? And it's information, it's training, uh, it's desire on the part of, of government officials, on industry officials. There's lots of pieces to this puzzle, and there's still some pieces missing. So it, it behooves all of us to make sure that we understand what has gone on before us, what mistakes other people have made, and profit from those mistakes. 
We talk about it all the time. We talk about it on this show all the time, right? And this is this accident is a good example. It started before they even got into the airplane. This accident started maybe early as, as 12 hours before they got into the airplane. But they obviously were not on their A game when they showed up. They were off. We think that there could be an element of fatigue that's in here. They certainly weren't thinking about the flight. They certainly weren't paying attention to the condition of their airplane. And maybe they didn't know about the tire pressures. Maybe they assumed, maybe they've only been flying out of locations where there is a company maintenance. So I this company was small. I don't even know if they had their own maintenance. But the, uh, the point is, as a pilot, especially a PIC, you've got to think about the unthinkable. You've got to think about all of these things ahead of time. Right? It, there's a burden on, on pilots that fly commercially. You have a responsibility to the people that you're flying. And that includes your first officer or the captain, whichever is pertinent. Right. You've got to be responsible for the actions that you take, and you've got to be reasonable in your approach to them. And, and in this case, we just see mistake after mistake after mistake that started early, and nobody recognized it. Nobody. There's only two people to recognize it, but nobody recognized it. And that's, that's scary. That's scary. Yeah. Well, I will get to our acknowledging our, the people who help us deliver this to you. And that is PAMA, the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, as well as Avemco. You know, if you need insurance, give Avemco a call. They're pretty easy people to deal with. They have to be. They insure Greg. So, <laughs> uh, and you might call into question their, their, uh, their thinking. Yeah, yeah. But in any event, they're good people to deal with. They'll give you a discount for listening to the show. Plus, there's other discounts available with the time you're training and so on and so on. So, but they're, they're great people to deal with. Give them a call. And if you're going to go flying, please do a good planning session before you even get to the airport. Do a very thorough pre-flight. Take a look at those tires. You know, general aviation, you should have a tire pressure gauge uh, with you. And if, after you get off the ground, please fly safely. <laughs>